The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, everybody. How about those 49ers, huh? Oh, well, always next year. Hey, my name is Paul, and I'm a Packers fan, and I'm here today to get it off my chest. I... I'm a pastor here at Heritage. It's my honor, as always, each week to be able to come and, and deliver God's Word to God's people. Uh, it's an honor to be here today. We are in the book of Daniel today. Uh, we've been since September, uh, beginning in the beginning of January. We began the second half of the book. We're going to be in chapter 7, finishing up chapter 7 today. Uh, you can turn there if you've got your Bibles ready to go. You know, it's not, a, it's not a mystery. I talk often about my love for the mountains. I talk about it, uh, you know, probably... 73% of my sermons, there's an illustration or a story about backpacking your mountains somewhere. You know, when I lived uh, out in the Midwest, I lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin for a bunch of years, and, and everybody knew my love for the mountains, and they knew that every year I would plan these trips, these epic trips to Montana or Idaho, and I'd go on these huge multi-day, uh, two-week long backpacking trips in, in the wilderness uh, of the Rockies, and I loved it. And so since that was really known for me, people all the time would get me t-shirts, postcards, placards, wall hangings that had that John Muir quote, the mountains are calling and I must go. And that was sort of like the thing that identified me. And, uh, and certainly it was very true. You know, I, I'm a guy who was born and raised in the mountains, as you know, in Montana, and living in the Midwest was hard. And so as we lived out there, we were doing really awesome, beautiful ministry, and, uh, but, you know, for me, it was difficult. The last nine years, we lived in the center of an urban jungle, surrounded by millions of people. And I lived in the Midwest. And so it was flat as far as the eye could see. And kind of the things that give me life were a long ways away. And I just sensed that long distance. Like the, the, the thing that put wind in my sail was, was not within grasp. And so what I would often do, if I, as nerdy as it sounds, is I would open up my, my iPhone, or I'd go into a, a, I had a YouTube channel where I'd upload all my videos, private channel, or I'd go to my, YouTube, or my Facebook page, and I would, on the worst days when it was gray and miserable in, in Wisconsin, I would just open up my phone and I'd look at images of the mountains. I'd look at pictures and videos of the mountains. And those pictures and those images would put wind in my sails, even as I was living in this flat land as far as the eye could see, and even as I was sort of slowly suffocating in the urban jungle, and even as I was at work and doing meaningful work in ministry, but it was challenging and draining, and even as my soul was weary, I would look at those photos, and I would look at those images, and it would cause hopeful anticipation to build in my heart for my next trip to the mountains that was in my future. Now, Daniel chapter 7 gives us some very specific information about the future hope for the believer. There's a picture given here, a vivid image, videos and images and pictures of the coming kingdom to encourage us to not be suffocated in the present reality of where we live, to encourage us, even as life here is challenging and draining, to help us to look forward to something, even as our souls in the here and the now are weary. God has given us this image in Daniel 7. God has given us this image so we can live our present lives in light of the truth of his future kingdom. And he's given it to us through apocalyptic literature and videos and pictures and images so we can have this picture in our heart and in our mind on the most difficult of days. Daniel chapter 7 is revealing God's plan for the future. 
And God gave Daniel this picture some 2,500 years ago. And God, in, in the way only God can do, he, he pulled back the curtain, as we've said in previous weeks. He, he unveiled, he revealed the unseen spiritual realities of future earthly events so God's people could know. So you and me today, so, so them then, but also us today, so we could know, as we sit in here right now, we could know that God has a plan for our future. God has not given his people this specific information that we might not do something with it. God has given us this specific information contained in this chapter so that we're not in the dark about what's to come for the people of God. God wants you and me and us to live with appropriate anticipation of his future. And so honestly, if, if I could summarize my whole sermon in a single line, this is, what, this is what it would be. I'd encourage you to write this down. God has a plan for the future. And he will accomplish his plan. That's my argument for today. God has a plan for the future and he will accomplish his plan. Now, isn't that good to know? Isn't that good to know? No matter how frustrating today may be, no matter how fearful, painful, worrisome, heartbreaking, crushing, disorienting, alarming, anxiety-inducing, no matter how bad it may be, isn't it relieving and hope-inducing to know that God has a plan for the future and he will accomplish his plan and nothing, nothing will stop him? Isn't that encouraging? And that's what Daniel 7 is giving us. Now we've seen over the last several weeks, beginning in chapter 7, that this book makes a dramatic transition. You know, we've, we try to touch base real quick on the context of the book each week. And, and as we move on, we'll stop doing the whole run-up and giving all the explanations to what's happening here in chapter 7. But we said previously that, that the first six chapters of Daniel are like bedtime stories. And the last six chapters of Daniel is like a night at the movies. But they're horror movies. The literature goes from narrative to apocalyptic. It goes from telling a story in the first six chapters to the unveiling of divine pictures and movies of spiritual realities of future earthly events. That's what the book does. And Daniel, interestingly enough, he goes from the one who is providing interpretation for apocalyptic visions to being the one receiving apocalyptic visions and needing someone else to interpret them for him. And so throughout much of the second half of the book of Daniel, we see a weary, exhausted, alarmed, ill, and pale with fear Daniel. This is hard stuff he's seeing and he's trying to process as God is revealing to Daniel the the future realities. Chapter 7 concerns itself. This chapter we've been in, this is our third week. it, It concerns itself with a single vision that God gave Daniel in the first year of Belshazzar and its interpretation. We've chosen to spend three weeks in it. I encourage you, honestly, if you haven't, seen or heard the the previous two teachings in this chapter, I think especially last week, I think it's probably important if you want to understand the fullness of what's going on here to go back and listen, whether on our YouTube channel or or through our podcast. If you've been here over the last three weeks, we've had a couple simple arguments. The first week as we looked at verses one through eight, our argument was this. As we saw these four beasts rise out of the sea, as the wind of heaven churned up the waters, we, we began to realize that there was a sovereign voice over all of that. And so we we contended in the first Eight verses that God controls the very things that actively rise in opposition to him. And then if you were here last week, as, as, as Daniel was given a different vision of a heavenly courtroom that, or throne room that turns into a courtroom, and we saw the judgment of the beasts, and we saw this crazy vision of the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days, and we saw that the kingdom of God and its eternal dominion was established. And so last week, we, we, we made the argument, looking at verses 9 through 14, that the justice is assured... And salvation is coming. And so today, 
as we look at these next 14 verses, I'm going to tell you right now, I had a stack of three commentaries last week to kind of highlight the differing opinions that exist within the larger framework of Christianity. And on these 14 verses that we're going to work through today, there are volumes written. Volumes written on how to interpret these verses. I don't have time today, nor am I smart enough to detail all the differing views that are contained in these verses As I was telling Pastor Jeremy this morning, I have a a conviction as a preacher that it's my conviction that I don't open a can of worms in the pulpit that I can't close in the pulpit. And so today I'm going to fly at a a level above this text that will allow us to see it in its fullness while not getting into the details where there's so much disagreement. My hope today is that collectively I could take those three men who wrote those three commentaries that I held last week and all three of them agree on the same conclusion. And my hope today as we work through the nuance of the text is that ultimately we can see this big picture. And what's the big picture? Rest assured, church, God has a plan for the future. And his plan will be accomplished. God will see to it that his plan is fulfilled. And we're to anchor our hope to this truth. That's why God has given Daniel this vision, both for the church and his people then, but for us today as well. God has put this here that we might know something about his future plan. That we might have confidence that God, in fact, does have a plan for our future. So we see as the chapter opens up, we journey through the four beasts, we journey through the heavenly throne room slash courtroom, we see the return of the Son of Man, and then we get to our text today, beginning in verse 15. Daniel is so caught up in this vision that he actually sees himself in the vision and he approaches one of the angelic beings because he is looking for help to understand what it was he just saw in verses 1 through 14. Let's pick up in verse 15. Daniel says, as for me, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise up out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped on what was left with his feet. And about the ten horns that were on his head and the other horn that came up from before, that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than all its companions." As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, the interpreter said, thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it in pieces. As for the ten horns out of this Kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after him, or after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. Verse 25. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end Verse 27, and the kingdom and the dominion 
and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people for the saints of the Most High. To the people of the saints of the Most High, his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Amen. Again, we know this text is difficult. We know this literature is difficult. We're going to work through it together today. Here's something I want you to notice right off the bat. Look at verse 15. Daniel says that as he comes out of the vision and he's looking for interpretation to understand the vision, he writes, My spirit within me was anxious, and the visions in my head alarmed me. And then in verse 28, Daniel says, My thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. Daniel goes from being alarmed to being greatly alarmed after he receives the interpretation. In fact, his face grows pale with fear. He's alarmed by his vision, and so he asks for this interpretation. And once he receives the interpretation, he's actually more alarmed than he was beforehand because there are some utterly terrible things that he sees. We'll unpack that here in a minute. But did you notice that little note at the end of the chapter? As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but, but I kept the matter in my heart. I like what John Golden Gay said about this. He said, Daniel is mystified and confused by his vision, but hopeful and open to surprise. He's determined not to discount the dream and not to miss anything, so he's going to keep thinking about it and looking for further revelation. See, Daniel knows the character of God. He's a godly man. We've seen that in the first six chapters. And even though there's much to cause alarm in this vision, and though it's terrifying and ghastly and disorienting and fear-inducing and anxiety-causing, and though much is still unclear, there's something greater going on than just the ghastly, terrible things. Above all the anxiety and the alarm, God is up to something. And it's as if Daniel gets that and he stores it in his heart. God has a plan for the future. And though Daniel might not know how it all works out, he keeps the matter in his heart. And so as you and I spend the next few moments unpacking this text, may we too rest assured that God has a plan for the future, for our future, and may we let that truth settle deep within our hearts. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, we are grateful to gather today. We're going to spend a few moments here, Lord, and we're going to look at the content of these few verses. God, I pray that as we do so, that this wouldn't just be a lecture or it wouldn't just be something interesting that would intrigue our thoughts, tickle our brains. God, I pray that as we look at these verses, and they're difficult if we're honest, they're, they're, they're unlike what we're used to reading in Scripture. God, we need your help. And God, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us today as we, as we unpack these verses, God, that we would ultimately, our eyes would fall upon you and, and upon the truth that's contained in this verse, that these verses, God, that, you, that you've got our, our future firmly in hand. You've got a plan, and we can trust you, God, no matter how tumultuous and unnerving today may be. We know, God, that you have overcome these things and that our hope is in you. So, God, I pray that our worship today would flow as we look at this text, as we fix our eyes on you, and as we cling to you in the midst of uneasy times. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, three things I want to share with you quickly today. As we look at the interpretation of the vision, we're going to see these three distinct things. Now, they don't come in chronological order, but as we look at the text as a whole, there's three truths that kind of emerge up that I want you to see, three features. The first one is this. We see that the saints will be oppressed. 
we see, firstly, that the saints will be oppressed. In other words, God's people will experience a great period of opposition and suffering. And Daniel sees the vision, and we see it in the passage. And if you look at the, the 14 verses that we're, we're teaching today, the majority of the text here is, is dedicated to languages, to, or rather to language and to image of the oppressors and to those suffering saints who labor under their oppression. So most of the ink that was, that was, that was put down on paper was dealing with this part of the, the text, that the saints will be oppressed. And so we see 10 of the 14 verses kind of being occupied with that idea, which means about 70% of our passage here is about the opposition and suffering the people of God will endure. So it's understandable why Daniel was just really focused on this. He sees these acts of violence and oppression, and, and we read that he's greatly alarmed. He sees visions of the people of God being greatly persecuted and suffering, and he, he, his face turns pale with fear. In fact, it's hard for Daniel to see anything else but the beast. He keeps going back to the beast. If you notice how the interpreter answered him at first, it's really kind of cool. In verse 14 or 15 and 16, Daniel's like, what did I just see? It was awful. Uh, I need someone to help me. Hey, random angel person, tell me what I just saw. And this angel person tells him what he just saw. He says, these four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. And that's all he gives. That's the, only, that's the only press that the angel or the interpreter gives to the beasts and all that the beasts possess. But in verse 18, he says, but here's the real point of the story, Daniel, but the, the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So you see where the, where, where the interpreter's focus is here. He skips over all the oppression. He, he says, yeah, yeah, beasts are going to rise up for a time, and, and the people of God, yes, they'll be persecuted for a season, but the people of God ultimately will possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Like, that's not, like, that's very clearly an eternal possession of the kingdom, and, and the oppression is temporal. The possession of the kingdom is eternal. And the interpreter is like, hey, Daniel, look at the eternal thing here. And what's Daniel's response? Does he say, tell me more about the kingdom that will endure forever, forever, and ever? And how it is the people of God will possess it? Is that what Daniel asks? No, he's like you and me. He saw some scary stuff. So he's like, nope, I want to know about the beast. I heard that language about the kingdom, but what about this terrifying beast and this little horn that ravages the people of God? I want to know about that. And so we see in verse 19 that Daniel even confesses, I, I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast, not, not the eternal kingdom, which was different from all the rest, this exceedingly terrifying beast with teeth of iron. We learn a new part of the beast we didn't learn previously, that the beast has claws of bronze, and this beast devours and breaks to pieces and stamps what's left with its feet, and the, and about the ten horns that were on its head. He wants to know about that. He wants to know about the three that were plucked up. He wants to know about the little horn of the big mouth that speaks great things. Daniel wants to know about the terrible stuff he saw. He, he recognizes that this fourth, beast, this fourth beast and this little horn will oppress the people of God. And so he, he, he looks to this interpreter and he's like, tell me. As he looked, he tells us in verse 21, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. This vision is continuing to unfold before Daniel and he sees this, this terrible king doing terrible things and prevailing over the people of God. And so then the interpreter in verses 23, 24, and 25 adds a lot more detail. Okay, you want to know about that? Let me tell you about that. And so he gives more detail in those three different verses. Tons of information. And we spent much of, the, much of the previous weeks identifying the kingdoms and talking about how to interpret this difficult literature. 
I heard one preacher say this week as I was preparing, he said, we have to resist, especially when you look at verses 23, 24, and 25 that are filled with all these little details. And it's so interesting to understand, if these details are, are pointing to future realities that God is revealing to Daniel, the temptation for us as interpreters is to want to identify one for one how every one of those details relates to some earthly or future event. And it's, it's an understandable temptation. But I heard one preacher say, who's way smarter than me, he says, we have to resist the obsessive temptation to find in these verses a one-for-one equivalence and still be focused on the secondary details that we miss the primary message. Last week we talked about how in apocalyptic literature, it, we, we call it, some have called it transtemporal. I used that phrase last week. I have learned that phrase since preparing for this sermon series, by the way. The, 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 the fact that apocalyptic literature is transtemporal, it simply means that, that one of the challenges in this language is the way in which different eras of time collapse upon one another. And last week we talked about that. We mean that as we read and interpret apocalyptic literature like Daniel 7, we need to be aware that images and symbols can often apply to more than one period of time in history, right? We use this example of the, of the, of the horizons. We looked at the mountain range with multiple horizons. And, and we said it's sometimes uh, when these authors are writing and God is peeling back the veil and they are seeing all these future things unfold, they're looking at multiple horizons at the same time, multiple future fulfillments at the same time. And so that's what the word transtemporal means. It means that, that what was written here in Daniel 7 was relevant for God's people then, but it's also relevant for God's people now, and it will continue to be relevant for God's people in the future. And though we might choose to focus on one horizon, we're actually looking at multiple ways these visions may be fulfilled throughout different times throughout human history. And so, for example, we're talking about how the people of God will be oppressed. There's no doubt that the people of God were oppressed in Daniel's day, under Babylonian exile. It was, her- it was a terrible time for them. Their city was destroyed. We've never said this, and it's never said clearly in the book of Daniel, but most scholars speculate that Daniel, as a teenager when he was exiled, was castrated. Most scholars speculate that he was a eunuch in service of the king. So this was horrific. They suffered in Daniel's time under the, under the, 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 the authority of the Babylonian Empire. But then you got the Medo-Persian occupation, you got the Greek Empire, and the, the atrocities of Antiochus Epiphanes in 2nd century B.C., in Jerusalem and in the Holy of Holies against the people of God. Gosh, the, the, the atrocities of the Roman Empire are well known. Nero and the thousands of Christians slaughtered. Titus and the slaughter of, and the overtake and overthrow of Jerusalem and all of the sacrilege that took place when the temple was destroyed. So there's no doubt that people in the time of the scriptures have suffered mightily. And then if you just look throughout human history, the last 2,000 years and beyond there, and before that even, there, there has been, suffering of the people of God since the beginning of time. And the people of God continue to suffer oppression today, whether in Nigeria or North Korea or Israel or Afghanistan. Any number of a dozen nations where Christians are persecuted. You know, right now as we gather here, relatively carefree and open because of the great privilege we have of being able to have the freedom of religion in our country, as we gather here this morning, we have brothers and sisters throughout the world who are living in the center of the wrath of the enemy and in the center of evil right now. Christians today are being oppressed. According to Open Doors World Watch list in 2022, as they look back at the year 2021, this is two years ago, 
More Christians were detained or killed for their faith, and more churches were attacked or closed uh, than in the previous years. So the appearance is that the persecution of Christians is on the rise globally. In 2021, 360 million Christians, or one in seven believers around the world, suffer significant persecution for their faith. Not being censored on Facebook, but being thrown behind bars and beaten. Read this. Every day in 2021, an average of more than 16 believers were killed for following Jesus. With close to 6,000 total martyrs in 2021, it was a 24% increase from the previous year. In 2021, there were 55 nations identified where there was Christians suffering very high persecution levels. And so I think as those Christians may read some of this text about the oppression of the oppressors, they might say, I I get that because that's what I see every day when I step out my door. In all corners of the earth today, the people of God are being oppressed and persecuted. So we can see the horizons coming in view, right? In Daniel's time in the time of Jesus, throughout church history. And even today, there's horizons of the people of God, the saints of the Most High, being oppressed. And and there'll be a great suffering, a great tribulation that awaits the people of God in the future. So as Daniel writes this, could he be looking at all these horizons, the reality of suffering for the people of God? Because the saints will be oppressed. And there's lots of interesting information in verses 23, 24, and 25. We don't have an opp- a time to go into all of it, but let's just look real quick at verse 25. As we sort of see the apex of the, of the oppression of this little horn in this beast, Daniel writes, He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. So we see this, this intentional war against the people of God and against God himself. And he shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. (laughs) When we read of this little horn, we might say he ultimately represents the final consummation and embodiment of evil. This little horn, though no doubt seen in many godless evil rulers throughout human history, It's ultimately revealed in the future coming of the one who the Apostle Paul calls the man of lawlessness or the man of sin. The Apostle John calls him the Antichrist. As one man put it, the kingdom of man finds its apex in the activity of this little horn, while the kingdom of God finds its climax in the destruction of the Antichrist and the dominion of the kingdom of God that will never come to an end. And so we see the climax of this little horn and the embodiment of the activity of Satan on planet Earth. And and we're told that this little horn shall think to change times, change the time and the law. Again, there are volumes written on what that line means. Lots and lots of different people have drawn direct lines back to certain instances, either in the past or in the future, of how this may be fulfilled. Some commentators said this is just an example of how this little horn has a God complex and he himself is trying to change time and the law as if he were God. We're told the people of God will be given into the hand of this little horn for a time, times, and half a time again. For those of you that are students of eschatology, you know that there has been so much written about what that little phrase means, a time, times, and half a time. There's been much written about that line. The question is, three and a half what? Daniel doesn't say it could be three and a half days, it could be three and a half years, it could be three and a half centuries. Ultimately, we don't really know because Daniel chooses not to tell us. 
I read this week that a common unit of measurement during this time was the week. And to say a time, time, and half a time, we'll talk about half a week, which is simply referred to a period of time cut short. Ultimately, we don't know. Daniel doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that there's a time limit. There's an expiration date on the opposition of the saints of the Most High. We do know that the tyranny, the persecution, the oppression has come down, that, that comes down to the people of God will one day end. It's not going to go on forever. That's the idea here. And though Daniel wanted to make it so, news about the little horn is not the main idea of this passage. Daniel wanted to focus on the little horn, wanted to focus on the oppression of the saints. That's what terrified him greatly. That's what caused his face to go white. Who wouldn't? When they see the people they love, the people of God suffering greatly under the hand of a tyrant. This is not the main idea of the verse. It's not the, the little horn is not the main idea of the passage. We know that Jesus told his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Jesus also said in the Gospel of John, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. The Apostle Paul said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted, and the little horn will rage. And the people of God, the saints of the Most High, will suffer oppression for a time. Don't lose hope. Why? Because God has a plan for the future. And he'll accomplish his plan. That's the idea here. Secondly, we see God gave Daniel his vision so that we might have confidence, secondly, that the oppressor will be judged. God gave this vision to Daniel so that we might have confidence that the oppressor will be judged. In other words, God will decisively overthrow the earthly kingdom that oppresses his people. Though we may, though, though, the way more ink is, is, is expelled in our text detailing the horrors of the beast and the little horn and the oppression of the saints, the words that ought to leap off the page for us as Bible readers are the ones that speak of the demise of the oppressor and the coming of the eternal kingdom. The words that we ought to pay attention to this morning are the ones that speak of the justice of God on behalf of his people, the, the words that tell us that there is a time limit to the beast and the little horn's reign of terror. We were first given a vision of God's pending judgment back in verses 9, 10, and 11. And in that vision, Daniel looked and he saw this throne of the ancient of days, God himself. And, and he was pure, infinitely pure, and he was infinitely wise. And his throne was ablaze with the fires of judgment. Wheels were on fire and a, and a river of, of the fires of judgment spewed out from the, the, the throne of God, hunting down and judging the wicked. And the evidence books were opened. And then we see in verse 11 that this little beast, this little horn, this, this tyrant, this oppressor is spewing great things. And in the middle of spewing great things, we read that as I look, Daniel says, the beast was killed and his body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And so we see the judgment of God being poured out in the vision. And now Daniel's receiving interpretation. And yes, in verse 20, 21, the, Daniel says, I looked and, and the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. But look at verse 22. Until this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, was beating them until the ancient of days, God himself came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And then in verse 26, we see this language again, but the court shall sit in judgment and the dominion, his dominion, this little beast, the, this oppressor, the dominion of the oppressor shall be taken away and be consumed and destroyed in the end. 
really just one and a half verses dedicated in our passage to the judgment of the oppressor. But the message is loud and clear. And as I said last week, those who oppress get away with nothing. The all-knowing eye of God sees all. Their reign of terror will come to an end. As Paul tells us in Colossians, Christ has forever disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There will be a day when every oppressor will stand before him and nothing will go unseen or unpunished. For some reason, I was drawn to this rebuke of Jesus to the apostles, or rather to the, the Pharisees in Luke 12. As Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, he says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And I think about those who oppress, both governments who oppress and individuals who oppress, and even the great oppressor himself, Satan. Get away with nothing. God gave the Apostle John a clear picture of his judgment in Revelation chapter 20. As we see the enemies of God coming up against God in this chapter, we watch as fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Later on at the end of the chapter, we read that if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's a promise of judgment here. And listen, that's heavy. And I get that that's heavy. But as I was thinking about this on a very practical level, I can tell you as a pastor, there have been multiple instances where I've walked alongside parents or spouses or individuals who have had a loved one who's been victimized in horrific ways. And I can think about the fathers I've spoken to over the years who've had to deal, and I know there's some of you in here, who've had to deal with the horror of a child being victimized. It's horrific. And I know the temptation. And I know how we talk as men sometimes. If we've had a child that's been victimized, we say things like, I just want to get my hands on that person. Don't you want to kill that guy? Don't you want to hunt that, that victimizer down? Don't you want to go find that oppressor and beat him into a pulp? We have this sorts of language. And it's very tempting for us to get caught up in visions of vengeance, retribution, Making right judgment. We're going to be the judge during execution. We're going to make right this horrible thing that happened. Listen, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. If you're, if you're in close relationship with someone who has suffered at the hands of an oppressor, they don't need the people in their life obsessed with vengeance. They need you to sit in the ashes with them, to weep with them, to walk alongside them in that valley as they seek healing that only Christ himself can, can extend. They need you present fully. I think it's a red herring. I think it's a distraction for us to occupy our mind with anything else. Now listen, I get, we want to see justice happen and there's the legal system and there's lots of nuance in this conversation. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if we believe this is true, if we believe that oppressors get away with nothing... And that God will judge the oppressors. If we believe that our God is an infinitely pure, infinitely righteous, all-knowing, all-seeing judge of all things, 
they get away with nothing. And even more challenging, but actually beautiful, if the victimizer or the oppressor turns their face to Jesus Christ and confesses Christ as Lord and puts themselves under him in faith, the wrath and the punishment their vile acts deserve was poured out fully on Jesus. Nothing was swept under the carpet. Nothing was forgotten. There's no wink here. Justice has still been fully satisfied. Amen? Oppressors will not last forever. Judgment is assured. David Helm, one of the commentators I've been using for this series, here's what he writes in his commentary. He said the church today needs to recover this emphasis for the text. Regardless of where you end up on the smallest details of these verses, the important truth transfers, transferred to Daniel was that of altered expectations. Don't misread the signs, in other words. Until Christ returns, one thing is absolutely certain. The rulers of this present order will do their utmost to wear the saints of the Most High. So stand in readiness. Do not be surprised or discouraged. And remember these words. The court shall sit in judgment. Folks, God has a plan for the future. And he will accomplish his plan. Third thing I want you to get. Final. The saints will possess the kingdom. Finally, we see that the saints of the Most High will possess the kingdom. God's people will receive his kingdom. This is by far the most significant and important message of this chapter, by far, not even close. Which is why I think it's important for us to struggle with the details of interpretation like scholars and Christians have for thousands of years, but we can't do so to the abandonment of the primary message of this, of this chapter, which is that the saints of God will possess the kingdom. This is the thread that holds the entire chapter together. Again, David Helm writes, the interpretation of the vision boils down to this. While ungodly and arrogant kings will continue to secede one another on the world stage, don't be anxious or alarmed. God will see to it that his people will receive his everlasting kingdom. And we see it three times in our passage. We see it in verse 18, in verse 22, and in verse 27. If you're a highlighter or an underliner, get out your pencil, please. I want you to mark something down here. We see language of receiving, possessing, and being given the everlasting kingdom. So look at verse 18. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Underline receive and possess, if you will. Look at verse 22. We see it again. Same message. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Underline the word possessed. Again in verse 27, we see the same message. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Underline or circle shall be given. The saints of the Most High will possess the kingdom. There's so much, that, that, is, that, that phrase is pregnant with so much meaning. Let me just read you one thing I found this week that I thought was good and helpful. The truth that we are kings and queens in Christ is not some idea conjured up to boost our self-esteem, but it's a present reality that we will enjoy in its fullness at the resurrection of the dead. At that point, we will sit on thrones alongside our Savior and enjoy by grace what is His by right. Until then, we are to reign over our sinful Passions bringing our minds, wills, and affections into submission to Jesus by the power of the Spirit through his word. Now, 
If we just look at some of the language we read in the Gospels and in the New Testament, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said that those who do the will of the Father will inherit the kingdom. Paul called those of us who have trusted in Jesus heirs with Christ. John said those who receive Jesus and believe in his name become children of God. There's this picture. I was talking about this with Jeremy on, on Tuesday. I'm like, you know, like I think of the first audience and even, even, even you know, at the time of Christ, of his birth and arrival, the, the, the vision that those people had of kings was one of monarchy. There was a sovereign. There was one who had all the power and everybody under him. And everybody, their wills bent to that of the king. And whatever the king said, we did, and there was no... But here the picture is, yes, we still have a king, Jesus, but Jesus invites his followers to be co-heirs of his kingdom, to reign alongside him as brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. The, The saints of the Most High shall possess the kingdom. They shall be given the kingdom. They shall receive the kingdom. God tells us that today. God has a plan for the future, and that is his plan for you. If you're in Christ, that you, will shall, you shall possess the very kingdom of God. God has a plan for the future, and he will accomplish his plan. So we saw three things today. Saints are oppressed, the oppressor is judged, and the saints will possess the kingdom. And that wraps up this chapter, but here's what I want to do. We've got a few minutes. I didn't want to end this chapter without offering some practical application. Because we've been looking at visions and images and dreams and talking about apocalypse. And if I can just be really honest, last week, um, I, I was really, you know, it's like it was a hard sermon last week. I sat with Jeremy and Aaron and Kathy on Thursday, and I, and I shared with them what I had. And I asked them, I said, guys, I need you to shred it. I need you to poke holes because I don't want to say something stupid on Sunday. And, bro, they shredded me. They just tore it apart. And they're like, yeah, that's, that, that sermon can't happen. And I was glad because that's what I asked them to do. So I had to rewrite kind of my whole sermon before Sunday. And it's very rare that I step off the stage on a Sunday morning and I feel good about uh, what I've written and what I've, what I've preached. Uh, but on Sunday, I was like, you know what? The, it wasn't the most exciting sermon I ever preached. I feel like I said what I wanted to say. And my, my daughter always asks me, hey, Dad, how would you think you did today? And I say, oh, it's horrible. I'm going to go work at Walmart. I suck. I should just give up on my job. <laughs> and she was like, Dad, it was great. You know, she's just, always so affirming. So I walked home and I announced to my family before they asked, I said, guys, I'm actually, I'm actually really happy with my sermon on Sunday. And my wife said, really? (laughs) (laughs) Becky, I love you. She's like, ah, so boring. (laughs) And I'm like, Abby, you're always the encouraging one. She's like, dad, I'm not going to lie. I wasn't paying attention. Uh, (laughs) But (laughs) I I recognize that this text is hard, right? It's hard to find application because it's, 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 it's apocalyptic. But I think there's some real handholds for us here, and I want to share them with you today. Number one, I think there's a personal application here. We read in our text that the saints will possess the kingdom. And for those of us that are claimed in Christ, for those of us that have trusted in King Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, and for what he accomplished for us on the cross, that have been born again into the family of God, this is our destiny. This is our hope. However, If you do not know God in that way, this is not your future. And I'm not a hellfire and damnation preacher, but there is some language in here about the judgment of God, though it's pertaining to the kingdoms of the world that oppress the people of God. The the picture in the larger scripture of judgment is terrifying. I can remember praying with an old man who had lived a vile life, 
And he knew he'd lived a vile life and done some vile things. And I asked him, why does he want to come to faith in Jesus? And he said, if I have to stand before a holy God, knowing the things I've done, I'm in trouble. And so listen, the saints will possess the kingdom if that, if that's, this is not your future if you do not know God. And listen, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in the pouring out of his wrath. But here's the personal application. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ in the work that he accomplished for you when he died in your place on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God for your sins, defeating sin and death by the resurrection, ascending to the Father, if you've never come to faith in Christ, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. I talked to a sister in Christ yesterday, and we were talking about the miracle. I was telling her about when we were in Israel, and I know I've shared this story. We were at this place called Galakantu. It's a, it's a place where Orthodox Christians believe Jesus spent the night in a, in, a, in a deep, deep, deep prison cell or a well before he went before Pontius Pilate. And you can actually go down to this deep well, and you can stand in this big hole carved out of the earth, and you can imagine what it was like for Jesus that night. And I told you this before, but I'll tell you it again. As we're sitting down there as a group of people, we read the 88th Psalm, which is a dark psalm about being forgotten in the pit. And one of the young men on our trip said, you know, Jesus Christ is the only one who's ever truly been alone. And he talked about the Father turning his face away and the reality of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. And so I was talking to my sister in Christ yesterday, and I said, isn't it amazing that you and I can wrestle with feelings of abandonment from God, and God lets us do that because he was actually abandoned for us. And so listen, the punishment your sin deserves was poured out on Christ. He was punished so you don't have to be. And so if you're here today and you've never come to faith in Christ, run to Jesus. That's a personal application. I think there's a public application here as well. Secondly, Jesus tells us in John 13 that the church is to be known to the broader world by what? They will know you are Christians by your, by your love, right? So love requires intentionality, self-sacrificing. I'm going to confess to you that when I am preoccupied with the beasts of the world, when my eyes are on the beasts of this world, when I consume cable news day in and day out, when I'm obsessed with the latest political scandal or maneuvering that's taken place in D.C. or beyond, when I'm stressed out by the headlines when I'm stressed out by what I see happening on the global stage, when I don't live as if I truly believe that God has a future for us, I'm tempted to play God. I'm tempted to, to worry and fret. And when I let that creep into my life, it's a cancer to my ability to love. And also, we have a world, and I don't have to convince you of this, that is absolutely obsessed with dividing us into little groups, into tribes and into camps, to us's and to them's. When we play into that game, that these political, what do you call the guy, the, the, the puppet master, when the political puppet masters are trying to get us to, 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 to divide ourselves into little camps that is antithetical of love. As I read this week, we are to live as God's holy people today. We are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Our lives are to be modeled after the life of Jesus. I think of what Jesus tells us on the Sermon on the Mount very simply. We are to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors. Now, most people who are outside of the church would probably say that this doesn't sound like the evangelicals they know or have seen portrayed on, in the media. That doesn't have to be true of the church. 
Now you and I, those of us that have been reconciled to Christ, we were once enemies of God, but we now are loved by God. You and I have been saved by grace, by the gospel. We've, when we've turned our face to God in faith, he has, by his Holy Spirit, regenerated us. We've been born again. We're new people. He's making us. He's forming us. He's shaping us more and more into the image of his son. The gospel ought to change us so that you and I can love people as we have been loved. That the unbelieving world would look upon the gathering and the assembly of God's saints and they would say, man, I can tell you one thing. I might not believe in their Jesus, but I see their love. So now the public witness of the church is to be one of love. I am reminded of how Jesus finishes the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. He says to the church, you are salt. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it the salt in us be restored. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. But in Matthew 5, 14, he goes on to say, you are, church, the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a light or a lamp under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light in all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God, your Father who is in heaven. So we see a personal, we see a public application. Here's the the last one. Ready for this? Don't hate me, church. There's a political application here. There's a political application here. I'm going to blame Dr. Townsend for this. Uh, as we are studying our text this Tuesday, we are looking at this text as a whole, and Dr. Townsend said something that's simple but profound, and I think it applies greatly to this text. He said, governments will never change a person's heart. He said, government will never change a person's heart. I couldn't agree more. A few years ago, about 20 years ago, I lived in a small town in central Wisconsin, and I was kind of ambitious and hungry, 20-something, late 20s, early 30s, and there was an opening uh, uh, seat for the local school board, public school board. And uh, someone from the Republican Party in our county found out that I was interested, and I was a youth pastor, and so they got behind me, got, got me a bunch of money, and I got elected to the school board. as like a 27-year-old, 28-year-old kid, <laughs> but whatever. And I got in there, and uh, and I, and I, and I, and I, I really genuinely love students. I was a youth pastor, and my thought was, hey, I want to just be able to serve the youth of our community. This is a kind of an extension of my job as a youth pastor. Well, in the middle of my term, there was a giant controversy involving some conservative teachers and some liberal teachers involving a poster that was defaming George Bush. And so it all ended up in this really hotly contested school board meeting where we had to try to do mediation between all these threats of lawsuits and all this stuff. And I walk, you know, if, you're, if you've ever been on a board like that, especially if it's a, a publicly elected board, you want to walk in the boardroom and have no one be there because you know then people are fine with your job. When you walk in and there's 300 people in there, you're like, oh no, what did we do? And the room was packed. And there was this huge controversy. And I'll spare you all the details, but I, I just remember sitting there and there was accusations being thrown. There was cameras filming to make sure people didn't say that and said that and people were held accountable. And, and uh, I remember the... Uh, the executive director of the Republican Party for our county got up and, and just spoke, but was so condescending and unlike Jesus, and it was so ugly. And I just remember thinking, this is not why I draw breath. Now, God bless the people who God has called good Christian men and women to serve public office. I think they need to go there and do that with excellency if that's the calling of God in their life. For me personally, I'm watching this thing unfold, and I'm having to draw lines in the sand that are a mile from the gospel. I'm like, I don't want to waste my breath on something that has no bearing on the souls and the eternal destiny of humankind. I thought, politics are not for me. 
I recognize that, that the policies I made as a school board member, local government, would never change a person's heart. Now, if that's what God has called some to, and that's the ministry God has given you, I say do it. For me, it wasn't the thing. So I say all that because it's so tempting for us to get so frustrated by the things we see in the world, and there's a political implication here for us. Now, I know that for my generation and older, we like our social media. We like our Facebook. So the question I'll simply ask you, with no accusation at all, honestly, this is just a question that I'm asking you and asking myself. Do your posts demonstrate a love for those opposed to the gospel? Or do they demonstrate your anger? I ask you just to ask that of yourself, being sensitive to the Spirit's leading. Now, my kids and the millennial generation just hate Facebook, and they say only old people use it. And so my question to you, Gen Z and millennial, is this. Is there anything about your life that would invite persecution? Is there anything about your life that would cause worldliness to feel uncomfortable? Not accusing you of anything. I'm simply providing space for the Spirit of God to be at work in your life as you assess your world. Now, does God need us to win culture wars for him? I don't know. I don't think so. Yes, I think we as, as Christians ought to be and should be and responsibly be involved in politics and be involved politically and socially. We should, yes, work for better policies that are going to make a better society 100%, but we should never confuse those values with the gospel values, with kingdom values. When he gives his kingdom to his people, I read this this week, when God gives his kingdom to his people, it will not be because we turned out the vote. It will be because he decided the beast has spoken enough. I was reminded this week and that we should stop looking to the government to do the work of the church. We should stop looking for the government to do work that only the gospel can do. Governmental policies cannot make this a Christian nation. Laws cannot make people Christians. Only the gospel can make a man or woman reborn. Only the church can preach the gospel. So may we, as the church of Christ, faithfully proclaim and put on display the gospel in our lives individually, in our lives corporately. Now listen, I'm going to finish with this. We look at the atrocities taking place in the world today, and there's lots of them. We look at the atrocious condition of the world, and we wonder, God, are you really in control? We need hope. Chapter 7 is God providing the information we need to know that we can have hope to live a life of faith now, to fight the good fight today. You and I need a vision of the future. If you and I are just living in the present, we're going to wear out. We need hope. We need a vision for the future. So today we are reminded by this apocalyptic vision given some 2,500 years ago that God has a plan for the future, and he will accomplish his plan. Daniel was wondering about the fourth beast. What about the fourth beast? What about the little horn? What about the atrocities? What about the oppression? The interpreter says, yeah, yeah, let me tell you about the kingdom. Although it may not look like the world is under the power, although it may look like the world is under the power of evil, although it may seem as if the devil is running rampant, the situation is one that is deceiving. A time is coming when God will rid the world of evil and he'll set up his kingdom and be done with evil forever. Amen? Father, we just want to come before you this morning and be very thankful that we have received or that we will receive this unshakable kingdom. 
God, we want to come before you this morning and ask that you would, God, just to continue to give us an understanding of, of what this means, God, uh, of what it means in this passage where the saints will possess the kingdom. God, help us wrap our minds around that reality. God, as I look at this passage, I see these words that, that, that my sister Kathy pointed out this last week. The, the, the words, but, in the text. The beasts of this world will rage, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. The, the beasts of this world shall rage, but the court shall sit in judgment. The beasts of this world shall rage, but we keep the matter of your promise in our heart. God, we thank you that you are a God who is constantly at work. Pray, God, that we could let the truth of the, the, the but God truth just settle deep in our hearts this morning, God. Trusting you, believing, in fact, that you do have a plan for the future. That you will accomplish your plan for us and for your glory. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.